You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. The CAO offers will go live from two o'clock today. 78,000 students applied to the CAO this year. The vast majority were Leaving Cert students. But with an increase expected in grades this year, an increase in the grades this year, the CAO points are likely to rise for some courses. And this could lead to some students possibly being left disappointed. However, college isn't the only road that leads to a fulfilling career and the Leaving Cert isn't the only way to get to college. Our reporter Tommy Meskell has been speaking to people about the different choices that they made after secondary school and he joins us now. Tommy, what have you been finding out? Well, all the students I spoke to definitely felt pressure to choose a university or institute of technology after secondary school. The truth is, however, it's not always the best option for people and whether that be because they didn't achieve the points or they don't feel ready or perhaps the new COVID-19 regulations have put a damper on the student life that they were looking forward to. The first person I spoke to was Rhiannon Smith and it was for that very reason that she decided that she'd put college on hold. She received her calculator grades on Monday, she got what she wanted, but prior to receiving her results she had already decided that she was going to take a year out. Even kind of before the whole pandemic I was kind of toying with the idea but I wasn't really sure. Um, But then once everything kind of happened I with online learning for sixth year it just kind of solidified it with me you know I I really it just didn't suit me at all and the thoughts of going into my first year of college and not being able to have that experience of meeting people and sitting at home and only kind of going on campus once or twice and having to pay rent and full fees as well like I just couldn't justify going this year. So, So you've made your decision and you're sticking to it do you know what you're going to do for your year out? Yeah, um, I'm currently working in a wee restaurant at the weekend. So I've said to my boss, you know, once all the kind of older staff who are in college, once they go back, I'm going to be getting a few extra hours. So (laughs) just doing that. And I suppose I want to learn how to drive and different things like that. So I do have a bit of a plan in place, even just to save up that bit of money so that when I do go, I can kind of not be too worried about the financial side of things as well, I guess. (laughs) Rhiannon Smith speaking there. Tommy, you also spoke to Kleena Gannon, who left secondary school before completing her Leaving Cert, but is now starting UCD in a few weeks' time. Yes, and she's really looking forward to it, even though, as Rhiannon pointed out there, it will be a a very different experience. Kleena first told me why she left secondary school prior to completing the Leaving Certificate. So I was um, feeling a lot of pressure to get good results and to follow along this mainstream to go to college. I left school um, in December of 2018. I was in sixth year and I decided to drop out. Um, I then looked up courses online and found um, through spunout.ie I found that PLC options were available for me. So I got accepted into Dundrum College to do applied social studies and through that then I'll be starting in UCD at the end of September. And what did you think of the PLC? How did you find all of that? Um, Are you glad you did the PLC? Yeah, I'm delighted I did the PLC. Like, there's such a broad range. You can do computer science, childcare, business. There's so many different options. And um, started looking at college websites as well and seeing how I could get from a PLC course into college if I wasn't going to have a leaving cert and whether that was a possibility or not. Cleana Gannon, who will be starting a course in politics, international relations and social justice at UCD in a few weeks' time. The next student you spoke with, Tommy, also did a PLC, but she began her course while living in Australia. Yes, Neve Dolan. She wasn't sure what she wanted to do after secondary school. She began working on a stud farm in Meath that summer, ended up loving the job and found herself in Australia. From there, she began an equine course with Dumboyne College of Further Education through online learning. You've told me her story. I got my points and I got a CAO offer as well. But during the summer, I had started a job uh, towards the end of the summer with Tara Stud, a stud farm in County Mead. Can you just explain how did you end up going to Australia? Why did you decide to do that? Derek, who runs that stud, suggested that I would learn a lot over there and uh, asked me was I interested in going and that he'd help me. And uh, it was an opportunity really that I couldn't really turn down at all. And when you were in Australia, you decided to do a PLC course, is that right? Yeah, so I started it in the September in Australia while I was working. And I worked 
through blended learning online in Australia up to December. And then I came home and was in college then for the rest of the semester. But obviously, ironically, we all ended up on blended learning then in around March time. Just finally, I think it's fair to say that you're probably glad you didn't go straight into university or or an IT straight after leaving cert. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. I I took my my time out to work and figure out what I wanted. We've also heard about gap years post-leaving cert courses, but there's also other options too, Tommy. There is, absolutely. Dennis Leonard is principal of Dumboyne College of Further Education. They offer a range of PLC courses, but Dennis is also a guidance counsellor, so I asked him what other options are out there. There's apprenticeships, there's traineeships, there's all kinds of, even for people who are out there who are working in a job maybe they may not like, they can go back into education now. There are so many options there compared to 30 or 40 years ago. And we're crying out for tradespeople across the country. For somebody who logs on to the CEO and their heart sinks and it's not what they wanted and the course they were hoping to get, uh, it just didn't work out for them this year. What should they do today? What they should do today is talk to their guidance counsellor in their secondary school who will talk to them about all the options available. The fact is we could all set out on a journey today to Galway. It doesn't matter how we get there, bus, train, it doesn't matter, you know, once we get there. And I think if they have something in mind that they want to do in five or six years' time, whichever route they take to get there, it's worth it because that's their career, that's what they want to do, that's where they feel they can make the greatest contribution to society. So do not give up on it. Talk to your guidance counsellor and make sure that you end up in an area that you choose rather maybe a choice way down the line of your CAO that you never fully researched and maybe you never wanted to go there in the first place. Dennis Leonard there, Principal of Dumboyne College of Further Education and we heard him talking about apprenticeships just to mention that the government as part of the July stimulus announced an apprenticeship incentivisation scheme that provides a grant of €3,000 per apprentice over two years for employers who register them before the end of the year and when launching the scheme the Tónista along with the Minister for Higher Education urged firms to consider this option. Around 6,500 employers already run apprenticeship programmes here. Tommy Meskill, thank you. Now, it was a truly astonishing moment. A Minister of the Crown and the Mother of Parliaments, as they like to call it, declaring that his government will break the law to get its way over Brexit. The UK government is this morning threatening to disavow the EU withdrawal agreement which that same government freely entered into no in less than a year ago and partly to maintain an open border here on the island of Ireland. But according to the Northern Ireland Secretary Brandon Lewis, legislation will be published today to disapply elements of that agreement. The Minister of Foreign Affairs, Simon Coveney, has described the admission as gravely concerning. Brandon Lewis was answering a question from Conservative MP Sir Bob Neill. Does he recognise that the adherence to the rule of law uh, is not negotiable? Against that background, will he assure us that nothing that is proposed in this legislation does or potentially might breach international legal obligations or international legal uh, arrangements that we have entered into? And can he answer specifically the other point? Was any ministerial direction given? Um, I would say to my um, honourable friend that yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. We are taking the power to disapply the EU law concept of direct effect required by Article 4 in a certain very tightly defined circumstances. There are clear precedents for the UK and indeed other countries needing to consider their international obligations as circumstances change. And I would say to honourable members here, many of whom would have been in this House when we passed the Finance Act in 2013, which contains an example of treaty override. It contains provisions that expressly disapply international tax treaties to the extent that these conflict with the general anti-abuse rule. And I would say to my honourable friend, we are determined to ensure we are delivering on the uh, agreement we have in the protocol and our leading priority is to do that through the negotiations and through the joint committee work. The clauses that will be in the bill tomorrow are specifically there for should that fail, ensuring that we are able to deliver on our commitments to the people of Northern Ireland. The British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Brandon Lewis. We can talk now to former Conservative MP Dominic Grieve, also a former Attorney General for England and Wales. A very good morning to you, Dominic Grieve, and thanks for, taking, thanks for taking our call this morning. What did you make of those comments by Brandon Lewis? Well, they were shocking comments. Um, the UK government may have its faults, but it has a consistent pattern in the last 70 years of observing its international legal obligations. 
and to suggest that it's uh, proper to uh, decide to trim and alter an international legal obligation which was entered into only uh, 11 months ago uh, in the way that he suggested is completely unacceptable. And I'm astonished at the suggestion that they're going to do it. Now, the background to this is very well known. Mm. Uh, At the time that the government uh, was in difficulty in the autumn of last year, I think the Prime Minister was aiming to go for a no-deal Brexit. And we were going to drop out of the EU on the 31st of October when Parliament prevented him from doing that. Uh, he uh, did the deal with uh, the then Taoiseach, Mr. Varadkar, mm-hmm. and uh, and with the EU. And in doing that, he accepted a, a, a status for Northern Ireland that was much criticised at the time because it did mean that although in one sense Northern Ireland enjoyed the best of both worlds, uh, there was the potential for erecting um, a, a trade barrier across the Irish Sea. And quite a lot of us said that in the context of the union of the United Kingdom, this was a a very unfortunate development and was one of the reasons why I argued we should have a second referendum. I was unsuccessful in that and the government decided to go ahead and do it. And then it got Parliament to ratify it. So for the government 11 months later to turn around and say... Uh, that it's acceptable to pass primary legislation at the Westminster Parliament in order to override that uh, is clearly a a matter of the utmost seriousness. Just to deal with the the, the specific uh, point made by Brandon Lewis, and you've you've been a a top legal advisor to to a former British government, he says that there is precedent for this in tightly defined circumstances for, for governments to engage in treaty override, as he calls it. Does that argument at all hold water? Uh, It does not, uh, because uh, he then went on to explain that it concerned an international taxation matter. Uh, And it's true that some treaties you can terminate. Uh, Some treaties you can bring to an end by giving notice that you wish to end them. Uh, And some treaties are frankly obsolete. Uh, and uh, each one needs to be looked at. So he's right in saying that there may be occasions, particularly in the field of tax, which is very much one of uh, uh, where where national sovereignty, it's a matter of adjustments Mm -hmm. between countries, uh, that there may be changes to tax rules or indeed tax ethics, which might lead to uh, an override in legislation. But that absolutely cannot be compared with an international treaty which has been freshly entered into, uh, has nothing to do with tax, and is in fact of a fundamental character. So, uh, so I'm afraid I simply disagree with him about that. Uh, under the, the UK's ministerial code, as I understand it, ministers uh, are, are pledged or obliged to uphold the law. Ministers bringing forward a piece of legislation that would uh, be in breach, that would disapply international law, would they be in breach of that code? Yes, they would be in breach of that code. And the reason why my uh, Bob Neal said, was there a ministerial direction, is also civil servants would be in breach of the code in helping uh, ministers carry it out, which is why they might have sought a ministerial direction, which was a specific instruction to do something which they didn't themselves wish to do. But we know that the Treasury Solicitor, who's the head of the government legal service, uh, resigned. Uh, And uh, whilst the circumstances of his resignation are not clear it was wholly unexpected and I think it is quite clear that he resigned because he was uh, uh, completely at variance with the government about the propriety of doing this. It also raises questions about my the current Attorney General. The Attorney General has a clear duty to uphold the rule of law and to make sure that the government upholds the rule of law. It's impossible to see Uh, how the current Attorney-General can remain in office uh, without uh, destroying her own reputation. And I'm afraid the same thing, uh, if the government persists in this, almost certainly applies to the Lord Chancellor, who has a specific oath of office which says he has to uphold the rule of law, which includes uh, international law as well. Dominic Reef, why do you think that this is uh, uh, this is a happening now, um, that this move has been taken now? Because we saw at the weekend the, uh, the DUP leader, Arlene Foster, saying, look, we're just going to have to live. We don't like it because we're just going to have to live with this uh, treaty provision, the Northern Ireland Protocol. So it, it seems that the, the Boris Johnson's government has gone into the corner and kicked a sleeping dog. I find it slightly difficult to understand why they've done this. Clearly, they don't, they don't now like it, although to suggest that they didn't understand 
its implications when they signed up to it is uh, is is ridiculous because lots of people pointed it out to them at the time, including myself. So I don't think that can be the case. I think it's true that the negotiations with the EU are, are not going well. After all, if we were to get a free trade agreement with uh, the European Union, uh, the reality is that this aspect of the Northern Ireland Protocol would simply not be noticed mm. because we would have free trade with the EU and therefore there would be free trade across the Irish Sea as well. Yeah. So the impact of the protocol would simply not bite. Uh, they seem to be particularly concerned uh, that if the negotiations fail and we leave with no deal, then Northern Ireland will be in an isolated position. Uh, and that is, I suppose, a, a humiliation It's mm. a, a, and something that they don't wish to see happen. We'll, we'll... But why should they should why they should do this now in the middle of the negotiations, when on the face of it, it makes achieving a sensible outcome in the negotiations much harder, that I find much more difficult to understand. All right, well, perhaps later in the day, things will become just a little bit clearer. We'll leave it there for the moment. Dominic Reeve, thank you. For a third night, around 13,000 people have tried to sleep on roads, in fields, car parks and even in a cemetery after Moria camp for migrants in which they had been living in squalor on the Greek island of Lesbos was destroyed in a fire. Many are children on their own. The Greek Prime Minister has urged European countries to move from words of solidarity to action to help. The German Chancellor says the EU must share more responsibility. Earlier I spoke to Dr Faris Al-Jawal. He's working as a field communications manager with Médecins Sans Frontières on the island of Lesbos. I just drove through uh, the road that links Mytilene to Moria with our teams and uh, yeah, it looks like the, uh, the aftermath of a disaster. People are strewn across the roads, uh, waking up on the streets this morning uh, under the sun in sleeping bags a couple of people have tents but the vast majority are just sleeping on the streets um the situation is a disaster uh there are you know thousands upon thousands of people who had to flee uh, the camp over the last couple of days and um as i said thousands of them are just sleeping rough on the streets uh it's a, it's a saddening sight Faris, what's your understanding of, of how the camp was destroyed? And is there any of it left? Is there anything left for people to gather, to go back and to get from what's, from, from, from what's remaining? It's impossible to say how exactly the fire started, um, but we do know that uh, tensions had been rising for some time and, and frankly the situation was out of control before uh, the fire uh, engulfed uh, Moria camp. Uh, there are, you know, over 12,000 people, or there were rather, stuck inside a place that had the capacity for approximately 3,000. Um, you know, living conditions were abhorrent. Uh, then you had the restrictions of movement, which limited people from changing the environment. Uh, and indeed, uh, access to healthcare. Uh, access to certain services to hygiene were extremely limited and and the situation was untenable. What is the plan for where they're going to live for the winter? I mean, it's unclear what will happen even in the next few weeks. The, there has uh, been uh, sort of announcements to say that some of the those will go onto ships for the time being that are being sent uh, and that other sort of areas will be created uh, shelter areas but I mean we're talking about basically areas where people will be put in tents similar to Moria and this is not a solution for the problem for MSF Medicines on Frontier have been saying for years upon years and even more loudly recently that uh, these people need to be moved to a safe space safe accommodation on the mainland of, of uh, Greece and of course other EU states need to step up and also take some responsibility here these are people who are fleeing war people who have gone through extreme trauma and now they're being re-traumatised again and again and again uh, we're talking about thousands of children here as well In the short term will another camp be set up? Well, that's uh, what is on discussion and, and has been announced in certain government announcements. Um, the idea to create sort of other type uh, type setting similar to Moria Camp, but again, this is uh, oh, can only be a, a very temporary solution. And, and indeed, this is not what we believe is the solution. We we know that people. Uh, 
cannot eat food through these conditions any longer. They've 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 had it up to to their limit, and it's understandable. You know, our mental health team have seen uh, a huge deterioration over the past past months. We've had so many severe cases. Uh, it's just untenable, and, and people cannot be put under this level of stress and trauma any longer. Faris, is Lesbos able to cope with another big camp, and does it want to? I mean, it's not really for MSF to speculate what uh, the island wants or what it doesn't. Indeed, there has been quite a lot of uh, tension between certain locals uh, against the, the camp residents and the camp structure. Uh, and there's been some, uh, you know, intimidation and even violent incidents. Um, so there's definitely a feeling of exasperation from certain certain locals. Uh, but... Uh, this is not uh, the fault of people who are fleeing war and seeking asylum. The, uh, this is the consequence of a containment policy uh, from the EU-Turkey deal in 2016 that has caused suffering, countless suffering, over many years, and it's come to a head. We can see clearly that this policy does not work. It's creating only more trauma, more suffering, and, and a, a different solution needs to be put into place. And for starters, that solution needs to entail... People need to be given dignity, safe accommodation, protection and access to healthcare and other basic services. Without that sort of plan, without that sort of long-term solution, what's going to happen to these people? Because we're talking about 13,000 people, 4,000 of whom, around 4,000 of whom, are children, many of them on their own. All that's going to happen is they're going to keep on suffering, the tensions are going to keep on rising, and uh, we're just going to see more events such as this. I mean, again, uh, this is not the first fire that has engulfed Moria. This is not the first time that people have had to, to flee. This is not the first time that uh, people have suffered uh, hugely as a result. So if, as, uh, if, this, if this policy continues, if people are continue to be treated without, uh, you know, dignity and, and given, you know, access to, to humane services, then people will keep on suffering. The tensions will continue to rise and, and we'll just go through this cyclical uh, situation that we have been going for for five years now. What effect is COVID having on this crisis? Well, before the fire broke out, uh, we there were indeed some positive cases in the camp, and this uh, this created further tension. The camp was then put on full quarantine, meaning nobody could come out of the camp at end, you know, unless it's for an absolute emergency crisis. Um, and and of course, that creates tensions. Uh, the, the the response to the COVID nineteen was not comprehensive, um, and this also created tension. And and now, uh, given the fact that the fire engulfed the vast majority of the camp, including the area for isolation. Uh, you know, those cases, I think we believe eight of them have been, eight of the 35 positive cases were, were discovered, at least that's the last report. Uh, but the others are still uh, need to be identified. So this is also obviously concerning. There are reports on the BBC this morning that local residents are blocking roads to stop charities like yours from delivering aid. Um, has that been your experience? Yesterday, uh, there were. Uh, yesterday morning, there was a sort of blockade of locals, um, you know, uh, making it very difficult for people to get through. Um, finally, in the afternoon, we managed to, you know, uh, send a medical team to our clinic, and right now we are also just making our way through uh, various kind of police barracks and block and uh, you know checkpoints to try and get to our clinic to to be able to provide medical desperately needed medical care for people who who need it. That's Dr. Dr. Faris Al-Jawal, a field communications manager with Medicine Sans Frontier on the island of Lesbos. Defeating the opposition, that's the aim of everyone involved in sport. It is certainly not stepping back and allowing another team to take your place. But that is what Ireland's lacrosse team has done ahead of the World Games, which are due in 2022. Ireland is making way for the Iroquois Nationals, a team of Native Americans for whom lacrosse is the ultimate game. We can talk now to Michael Kennedy, who is CEO of the Ireland lacrosse team. Michael, good to have you on the programme. Were you asked to make way or did you volunteer? 
we volunteered. Um, this particular event in 2022, the World Games, it's actually a multi-sport event. So it's totally independent from, you know, our own World Lacrosse World Championship. And uh, essentially, the World Games is linked to the Olympics. And so there has been an assumption that um, eligibility criteria for teams uh, for the World Games event would be the same as what applies in the Olympics. And even though at the last uh, lacrosse world championship in Israel in 2018, the Iroquois actually finished third, um, they weren't issued an invite to the World Games because it uh, there was the assumption that with the Olympic eligibility criteria, you know, the Iroquois nationals are not an Olympic association. They don't have an, uh, a local Olympic committee. And um, we actually finished in 12th in that tournament in 2018. But with the Iroquois who finished in third out, um, there were two other teams who were only provisional uh, or associate members of World Lacrosse, Puerto Rico and the Philippines. So they weren't eligible to have their ranking applied to the World Games. And then Scotland finished ahead of us. But again, with this Olympic criteria, they would be competing with England and Wales as a Great Britain team. So we were actually the final team, a 12th place team, to get the invite to the World Games. So World Lacrosse started discussing the prospect of including the Iroquois Nationals with the International World Games Association. And they issued a public statement saying, the International World Games Association is willing to consider their inclusion. And I think at that moment, uh, my organization, you know, was able to read the writing on the wall. And, uh, you know, we knew that if the Iroquois were going to be included, because there were only eight teams who could be invited as the last team to qualify, it was probably us, uh, our place that was at risk. And we absolutely supported the inclusion of the Iroquois. And we decided we'd make that step in the process as easy as possible. And so kind of voluntarily vacated our our position in that yeah. tournament. Well, to, well to fair, play, fair play to you. Fair play to you. They, they are very appreciative. They, they've made a new green, white and orange version of their logo with the slogan Ijanta Achela together as one. Um, it's, it's a big offer from you. Yeah, well, you know, the Iroquois are uh, the sort of spiritual or, or the soul of the game of lacrosse. They say that the game of lacrosse was given to them by the creator uh, and it's a medicine game and they then passed it on to the rest of the world. So, you know, they gave us the game. So, you know, the way we would look at it, it's a very small gesture indeed. Uh, to step aside to enable them to play it at the highest level. Um, so, you know, we're very grateful to them uh, for having given us the game in the first place. Well, thank you very much indeed. And who knows, you, you might make a case for a ninth team inclusion in the games. It may be looked on favourably. Michael, thanks very much for talking to us. Michael Kennedy, CEO of the Ireland Lacrosse Teams. <laughs> And you're very welcome back to Morning Ireland. Well, the EU and the UK Brexit negotiation teams will be meeting in what's billed to be sort of an emergency session today to discuss Britain's stated intention of disapplying some of the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's a key part of the Brexit withdrawal agreement. The move has drawn international condemnation with key American figures saying now that there will be no US trade deal with Britain if it does anything that threatens the Good Friday Agreement or peace on the island of Ireland. Talk of a hard Brexit and even a hard border is in the air again today. So where do we go from here? Taoiseach Michal Martin is with us in studio. Good morning, Taoiseach. Good morning. You set out your concerns in forthright terms to Boris Johnson. What did you say to him? Well, I made it very clear to him uh, in no uncertain terms um, or outright opposition uh, to the moves that he, that, that, he, that he and his government took yesterday. The unilateral nature of uh, the British government's decision uh, to break an international treaty or to uh, signal its intention to the publication of this bill of breaching an international treaty and its obligations under the Northern Ireland Protocol. I pointed out very strongly to him that this was very unsettling for Northern Ireland, that it was dragging Northern Ireland back into the centre stage, that it was bad for Northern Ireland politics and would be divisive. But more fundamentally, I made a point to him that we all have obligations as political leaders 
to protect our peoples from the worst effect of a no deal uh, and that this intervention was very, very serious um, and has raised a fundamental issue of trust between the European Union negotiators and the United Kingdom uh, and ourselves uh, that when we enter into an agreement uh, solemnly engaged in hard-working negotiations and so on, you sign off, you go through your own parliament uh, and your own parliament approves this and then you decide um, uh, to, to, to undermine that international agreement, that that has implications for the conduct of negotiations into the future. Indeed, but should we be that shocked that Britain is shirking a deal made with the EU when the whole point of leaving the EU, the whole point of Brexit, was that they didn't want to be told what to do? Isn't this the way Britain means to act going forward? Well, Britain signed up for this and it, it's, it's with a view to ensuring because Britain has said consistently it wants access to the European uh, market for its goods and its services uh, to maintain the jobs that they have in the United Kingdom and, and a whole range of companies and sectors. Uh, and that's why this particular um, f- uh, mechanism, the withdrawal treaty uh, and the Northern Ireland Protocol were, were put in, in the first place to enable uh, good conduct of business between Ireland and Great Britain uh, also in terms of Northern Ireland between Northern Ireland and the single market and Northern Ireland and Great Britain uh, it, it complex uh, provisions but nonetheless a provision and a mechanism that I, in my view gave the optimal outcome uh, for all parties right. concerned What did he say to you? Well I, I'm, I'm not going to go through the entire telephone conversation well, with other leaders You clearly weren't happy You weren't assured but I think he's, 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 he Put it this way He has a full understanding of where I'm coming from uh, and our views and also, I think the difficulties that this has now created in terms of the conduct of the negotiations. Um, because obviously, and I've been in touch with the President um, of the European Commission, von der Leyen, spoke twice yesterday. They are taking this very seriously. Um, they, they, I mean, the timing, it was, it was just at the time when the eighth round was commencing this week of negotiations. Well, just, we just to go back to Boris yeah. Johnson, can you trust anything that he said to you in well, that phone call last night? Trust has been eroded, but he made it very clear to me uh, that he said the United Kingdom uh, was fully committed to meeting its obligations in relation to the protection of the single market uh, and um, in relation to uh, the fluidity of trade with North and South. In but other how words, can you believe that when his actions seem to suggest the opposite. I was just going to come to that. The the legislation runs counter to that. But nonetheless, these were the assertions that the United Kingdom Prime Minister uh, was very clear with me last evening. Obviously, then the Joint Committee meeting today will have that tested uh, in its full by the European Union leadership. Now, some people seem to think that this is a lot of bluster. It's brinksmanship. Is it? And if so, has it worked, given that there is this meeting today and I believe there will be an Irish representative and a representative from, from Belfast there? Yeah, we, we, we will have a senior uh, official representative at that joint committee meeting. Uh, in, in our view, this joint committee format, which is a mechanism that emanates from the agreement, was always the, the forum. So there's nothing the, that different no, about no, what's happening no, today? It was always the forum to discuss any issues that any party had in relation to uh, the operation of the protocol. If the United Kingdom have issues, that's the forum to deal with it. They should never have published this legislation yeah. in the first place. Don't we place. need a louder voice no, there at this stage no, rather than just no, leaving this is it up a, this to is the negotiation This is an official's um, um, sort of forum. It's, it's, it has met before. And, and obviously, but, but the stakes are higher now because of the British action. Um, and you, you've asked the question, was the supply? Um, people would speculate in relation to that. But, it's, but fundamentally, though, the publication of the bill uh, signals uh, an attempt by the United Kingdom government uh, to essentially break its commitments entered into an international agree- agreement. And that's very serious. And, and that, that, you know, I think the European Union uh, leadership uh, is, will be very concerned about this in terms of how the negotiations go from here on. And Brandon Lewis said that it, it was a limited and specific breach of the legislation. He says it's to do with them. Um giving state aid to industry, is that in itself a big problem or is it more just this whole issue that if you're going to breach one thing, trust is breached? And bear in mind, there is more legislation coming down the tracks. We don't even know what's in that. Well, the British Prime Minister is of the similar view. You know, they use language like extreme possibilities and so on. But actually, when you look at the clauses, it does more than that. Uh, The clauses in the the legislation published essentially it gives the capacity to nullify the, the, the protocol and gives a, a total power to British ministers uh, to do what they want when they feel you know it, it's justified in relation to the withdrawal agreement and, and, and the Northern Ireland Protocol and that's not sustainable. Okay, what's your level of confidence now in relation to getting a deal? Well, I, I, would, I would, you know, I, I'm not optimistic at this stage um, and I think we published yesterday our Brexit pre- Preparedness Programme, Readiness Programme 
and we said there were two options now on the table. One was a limited free trade agreement uh, and a fisheries agreement or a no deal. Uh, and I think yesterday's development, because it undermines trust in the negotiations, uh, makes it all the more difficult and challenging to get to where everybody says they want to get to, which is a free trade agreement with no tariffs and no quotas. And I've made this point very strongly to the Prime Minister on a number of occasions, that all of us have an obligation to the people we represent, the workers out there, people in business and employment in Northern Ireland, in the Republic, in the, in, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, to protect their jobs. And no deal will damage uh, people's lives uh, and economic prospects uh, very much indeed in addition to COVID-19. It's, it would be gross irresponsibility uh, to get to that stage and I made that very clear to him and this kind of stuff that we witnessed yesterday is not constructive and is not conducive uh, to the realisation of a sensible trade deal. So are you telling say a businessman on near the border this morning or a fisherman get ready for a hard Brexit because other groups have been telling them for weeks to, to do that given what well, they're we, seeing. We are saying uh, and we are are preparing for for that prospect um, and we have to prepare for that prospect now. Okay. Can I turn to um, COVID-19? It is reported that the rolling testing that was being carried out in meat plants, which I think you yourself announced about a month ago, has now been suddenly stopped because of pressures on the system. But yet we're also hearing that there was about a 28% positivity rate in the meat plants. How can you stop the no, testing? No, there wasn't a 28%. But no, I mean, no. No, the, the serial programme that's underway has been rescheduled. I think it was due to Wednesday to Friday this week. It's been rescheduled to Monday to Friday next week because of the increase in community uh, activity and, and the need to be out there testing in the community, which has always been the principle applied. I mean, we've, we've serially tested all of the nursing homes. We then said we want you to go into the meat plants. The, pos- the positivity rate uh, is, is at about 0.2% uh, in, in terms of the serial programme. Where does an outburst in a particular meat plant the, 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 uh, the testing and tracing will move in very quickly on any clusters or outbreaks um, and I think it's a good programme it's keeping pressure on the virus within that particular environment but we, it, it's always been the principle that where there's outbreaks in the community or greater pressure in the community the allocation of resources has to be prioritised uh, towards those uh, areas and that's what's happened here um, and um, Does it show though that the testing infrastructure is under a certain amount of pressure and I suppose it, it, it would be at this point but how can can we continue, to, I suppose, to run around with tents and trucks, to, you know, whacking everything oh, where no, it pops to be up? Fair, is is we that would, the best option we, we have want, here, taking it from the meat plants to put it somewhere else? We would have one of the higher levels uh, of testing um, across Europe and we're going to continue to ramp that up and increase that. And as part of the, uh, the new framework we'll be announcing um, next week, um, testing and tracing is a key element of that, both obviously within the community, but also in terms of testing certain locations such as meat plants, direct provision, um, nursing homes, healthcare uh, settings uh, to try and keep the virus under pressure uh, and, and, and get in there very, very early, uh, which has been happening uh, to a significant degree over the summer, particularly in the nursing home context. And will targeted lockdowns be part of that plan that you're going to announce next week or some kind of an alert system? Well, we're looking at a, a number of levels that will be triggered by, by NEFID into the future. We're looking uh, essentially to try and bring an overall framework to this that embraces the health, public health dimension, the resumption of health services, the resumption of education, economic and social activity and look at it as an overall um, sort of situation in terms of how people live their lives with COVID. We want to protect lives and we want to protect livelihoods uh, and we also want to ensure uh, that, that there's clear, consistent um, approach to, to dealing with, with COVID over the next six months um, and then uh, con- con- constantly review it a- a- along the way. But we have used localised uh, responses in terms of severe restrictions that they worked in Leash Offaly and Kildare uh, obviously th- those will be part of a suite of options open to NEFIT into, in, in, into the future uh, but it will be clearer to the public at what particular stages those would kick in And if the NEFIT does recommend to you today that they want uh, really no confirmation or communion these were delayed celebrations that might be happening in homes around the country that they, they, they just want that put off for a few weeks would you back that recommendation? Well we, we've been we've, look, we've accepted a broad trust of, of, of public health guidance and advice uh, from NEFIT. Uh, we will be meeting with the CMO today in the context of the Cabinet COVID subcommittee. NEFIT will be meeting later in the afternoon uh, and we will obviously hear what advices they have as of uh, today. But overall, the message and the consistent message in, in, in the new framework will be to 
people. Personal behaviour matters. Uh, re- reduce your, 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 your contacts. That is vital, uh, particularly in Dublin uh, and in Limerick, where there are concerns in terms of the rising numbers. Uh, and th- that will be the focus of, of the advices that will emanate from NEFIT. And you were correct, it is 0.2% in the meat plants. That is my mistake. Um, just in relation to, can I turn to the north? And Mich- Michelle O'Neill has now made her, her moves to... Um, I suppose, put the the Bobby Story funeral behind her because they want to do joint press conferences again, particularly in relation to COVID-19. What's your reaction to that? Well, I welcome uh, that that initiative two and a half months after the the Bobby Story um, funeral. uh, I think it did damage um, the um, the faith and public confidence in 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 the administration at the time, uh, and and did cause uh, significant issues uh, for the executive. But I think I welcome the uh, statement from from Michelle O'Neill. I think you know the, the response of Sinn Féin overall was one of denial for far too long, and and is in sharp contrast to the response of uh, various uh, public figures here in this jurisdiction uh, in relation to various events that happened. And I think it, it should have happened earlier, but it has happened, and I welcome commit. Uh, and I also, you know, I spoke to Michelle O'Neill last night on a separate matter about uh, the developments in, 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 in London. And I spoke with Arlene Foster. Uh, and I think both are very focused, to be fair, on the practical impacts of Brexit now on business in Northern Ireland, on employment in Northern Ireland. Uh, and, you know, I want to work uh, in a collective and shared way with uh, the First Minister and Deputy First Minister of the Northern Ireland Executive to advance uh, the, the, the prosperity of the island into the future. OK, and they specifically talked about being able to talk together about COVID-19. How concerned are you about the rise in numbers, particularly in Dublin, in the last uh, couple of weeks? And also, there's been a couple of cases in nursing homes. Are you afraid that we could go down that road again. Could that happen again? Well, I am very concerned in terms of the, the, the increase in numbers. We always are um, because it's happening across Europe. It's happening in, in, in Belfast, for example, and in the north. And I see where ministers are looking at uh, restrictions there and have publicly stated that. Um, so uh, this is a concerning time. We've learned lessons from what we've done in the past. Mm. Uh, so the serial testing within nursing homes is, is, is helping us to keep uh, on top of the virus and to identify where it emerges f- from any, at any given time. Is it a good time to um, open and pubs. Well, in terms of, you see, when I say we've learned lessons, uh, we, we have learned lessons. Uh, and nationally, you know, the figures are, are low in other parts of the country. Um, so when we took a decision uh, in consultation with NEFID in relation to pubs, it was always caveated with whatever happens over the next while in terms of localised restrictions uh, or in terms of the epidemiology. Uh, but I do think that publicans do need it, uh, an opportunity to demonstrate that they too can obviously adhere to the restrictions, okay. uh, the conditions and if they attached. Can't, it would go backwards. Uh, and, and, and get their businesses open because for six months, uh, you know, they've been out of business. Indeed. It's been very, very difficult for them. And in many counties where the levels are very, very low, uh, I think they have a case and they have a point. There has been some very strong criticism about the way the message has been delivered here. And I'm just thinking of Boris Johnson yesterday when you were talking to him. He was probably thinking about rule number six, which is a very simple message for people to understand no more than six people gathering together. Do we need to be more specific and more simple with the messaging here? Well, the last uh, message, the last major set of restrictions was six and 15, um, fundamentally, but people get exercised about a, about a particular regulation on a particular yeah, but subset of issues. But it's hard for them when they see pubs um, opening, they're wondering, why do we have no, to No, but I think the, the, you know, I think the message has, and that's, you know, the framework next week will uh, be around that idea of very simply messaging around personal behaviour and that people will understand different levels at which um, restrictions will have to kick in if the levels go, um, you know, if, if the level of, of numbers and cases and so on like that uh, spike and that NEFID will, will intervene at certain stages along the way. But I think essentially what is happening here is we're moving into a second phase. I think people are tired and fatigued with this virus. It's difficult. It's challenging to people. Uh, and this is going to continue. We, we are asking people to be resilient as they have been. Uh, I think fundamentally it is about reducing social contacts, adults in particular. We succeeded in bringing a million people back into our schools. That is no mean achievement in the midst of a global pandemic. Fantastic work by uh, the education communities, uh, the teachers on the ground with the SNAs and and the school communities. We want schools to keep open. 
we want health services resumed. We want economic activity maintained because the economic impact has been very severe. Indeed. And we want people to keep working. Those are the overarching and objectives of the plan. In terms of, of working, can I just yeah. finally ask Sorry. you about the Debenhams workers? They've been experiencing great difficulties, I suppose, following the liquidation of that company and it's rumbling on. There, there are still pickets. The government has been called upon to provide maybe an extra package of supports. Is there anything that you're prepared to look at there? Well, we have, the government provides statutory redundancy. Uh, there, there's also a range of supports that government can provide to, to, to workers who've been, uh, you know, made redundant. Uh, I think the workers here have been treated very shabbily by the company. But is there uh, the anything more which, you can do for them? Well, we, we, we have been in, in, in contact with ICTU. Uh, we've been in contact with Mandate. Um, and, you know, we'll see, you know, within the law and within the legal framework that we operate within, uh, we will do what we can to support the workers uh, in this situation. Um, they've been a long time on the picket line. I know uh, it's been very, very difficult for them individually and for their families. Uh, and I've met Could them. Could there be a specific um, government I think scheme you look, that might support You can't them. just, uh, you know, invent a scheme for one particular um, situation because obviously that would have knock-on effects in other situations as well. Right, so you're not well. prepared to do something um, wider. But we are, look, we have been in discussions, as I say, with ICTU and with Mandate in relation to this specific situation in relation to Debenhams. Uh, and you know, that, those contacts will continue to, to see if we can do something uh, to help them in, in their predicament. Okay, Michal Martin, Taoiseach, thank you very much for joining us this morning. A video of a young boy apparently driving a lorry on a motorway in County Armagh is being investigated by police. Here's the audio from the video, which appears to show the boy, possibly pre-teen, driving the vehicle under instruction from an adult. You right there, lad? Yeah. Are you on the bank? Oh, lift off her, lift off her, you wee rod. A reporter, Adele McAllister, is here. Adele, what more do you know of this? Well, Gavin, the video is on the website of the Portadown Times newspaper in Armagh this morning. It's also been circulating circulating on social media. Uh, the person in the driving seat of the lorry appears to be a young boy aged possibly around 11 or 12. Now, both adult and child are blurred in the video that's been circulated and it, it lasts less than 10 seconds. Uh, it was apparently taken on the M1 eastbound close to Dungannon. Anyone who knows that route will know it's an extremely busy route for drivers heading, heading to Belfast, towards Belfast. And other vehicles are clearly seen passing alongside. Now, obviously, we don't know when the video was taken or, or what time of the day it was filmed. What are the PSNI saying about this? So, uh, a spokesperson for the PSNI, they've confirmed they're aware of the video and they've issued a, a short statement to me this morning saying they've received a report and are aware of the footage which has been shared on social media and they're making inquiries and anyone, police have obviously asked anyone who recognised the boy or the voice on the video to contact them. Adele, thank you. That's our reporter, Adele McAllister. Ryanair is threatening to close its bases in Cork and Shannon airports for the winter unless the government relaxes the 14-day quarantine requirement for passengers coming into this country from certain other uh, destinations. In a memo issued to Ryanair staff at both airports yesterday, the airline blamed what it said was the government's mismanagement of the green travel list for the decision. The memo from CEO of Ryanair was circulated to 130 staff. In it, Eddie Wilson said the government had ignored calls from the airline industry to add EU countries with lower COVID cases to Ireland's to the green list and forward bookings this winter at Cork and Shannon and to a lesser extent Dublin had suffered irreparable harm. Let's talk to Timmy Dooley, who's former uh, Fianna Fáil TD for Clare and uh, currently a member of Shannon Aaron, and to Paula Cogan, who's President of the Cork Chamber of Commerce and Head of Sales for Doyle Hotels. Thank you both for joining us on the programme. Um, Paula, perhaps I can come first to you. Is this a threat that should be taken seriously, do you think? Yes, I believe very seriously, uh, Brian. We know from previous talks and negotiations with airlines that they make commercial decisions on aircraft and routes three or four years in advance. So if we lose our route at the winter, from winter, it's going to have an impact right the way too until 2023, we believe. And what will that impact be? How do you assess that? As it stands currently, Cork Airport in 2019 had 2.6 million passengers through the airport. This was an unprecedented growth of 30% since 2015. The airport's worked very hard to get new routes in and Ryanair has supported that. We know it's not just leisure travellers travelling in, it's also business travellers. And as we can imagine at this stage, from a Brexit perspective, it's going to be a, a very hard Brexit. We will need those new European routes to find new markets for our businesses in the region. 
Um, Timmy Dooley, in terms of the Midwest, what would be the impact of this? Let's assume it is for the winter and, and flights would, would resume um, after that in, in next year. What would, what would even be the short-term impact? Uh, well, the short-term impact is already there because the impact of COVID-19 at the moment has had a, a hugely negative impact uh, on inbound tourism, particularly from uh, the UK, Europe uh, and the United States. So I suppose what, what, what the industry in the region is looking to is to see how they can rebuild uh, their businesses as we get to a point where we have to live with COVID-19 and people recognise that we're going to be living with it uh, for quite some time. So there, there is a necessity now for the government to engage with the aviation sector recognise that aviation and tourism uh, is valued to the Irish economy of close to 11 billion. So it's a very, very significant contributor uh, in, in real terms, in money and, and in employment. Uh, 75-80% uh, of the inbound tourism to this country comes from the UK uh, and Europe. Um, nobody is saying that you're going to return to the kind of numbers that we had. Uh, so, so, but, but I think it's not just Ireland on its own. You'll be familiar with the fact that the European Commission last Friday set out proposals about coordinating uh, and getting some kind of commonality of approach uh, with the traffic light system. Uh, including also this grey area which, which, which they talk about. Uh, and I think you know what the government need to do now is, is clearly indicate that they're going to engage, as I expect they will, very fully uh, with the European Commission at the next European Council meeting um, so that we get a coordinated okay. approach, that we don't have this individual right. approach country by country, so that there's certainty given to the airlines and to the sector generally. Paula, Eddie, Eddie Wilson has focused on this on the green list. It hasn't been updated since the, the early part, since the beginning of last month. Um, what would you like to see in relation to the to, the, to that in terms of uh, the people being clear about who can travel from where? Again, I think it's from a European context. We're not aligned at the moment. The protocols that we have in play are very, very different from Europe. We need mandatory testing, as has been put in place in other European countries. Of course, as well, there's also the Aviation Task Force recommendations, which none of them have been implemented at this stage. That also includes financial supports to airlines, marketing um, and, of course, the green corridors, all very essential. Uh, to be doing the, the green list when it was first published was meant to be updated every two weeks, isn't that right? Uh, but, but it hasn't been. Um, uh, now, why hasn't that happened? Why well, hasn't well, the government that you support uh, yeah, delivered well, I, on that? I, I think what the government now needs to do is move towards a, a pan-European approach, uh, and I expect that that will happen. I'm hopeful that it will, because that will give certainty to the to the industry generally. Reality well, is no, that we do, we do need to open up. We do need to open up the What about what is within our control? The green but, list published by but, the government here, which hasn't changed in well over a month. There's little point in my view in in publishing a a green list in isolation uh, of other countries because what we've got to do is harmonise our approach across the European Union recognising that some 75% of our inbound tourism comes from the UK the UK yeah. and Europe. But mean, uh, meanwhile, meanwhile we have travel restrictions on people coming from countries that have much lower rates of COVID than no, ourselves. No, and, and that's that's the point. I mean our, our, our infection rate has increased very significantly since the first publication mm. of that green that, that, that green but list. the list hasn't so, changed. No, no, I accept that. And what I'm suggesting that we now do we now work towards opening up our, our tourism sector, opening up our aviation sector and doing so while we try to limit the spread of the virus. And I think the best way to do that is in a coordinated way uh, through the guidelines that are, are, are coming from the European Commission and hopefully will be agreed uh, by heads of state at the next European Council meeting. Paula, what about the, the risk of long-term damage to our aviation sector, our connectivity, whether it's for tourism or for business, and the decisions that are made now, which are at this stage and in good faith, short-term decisions for the winter, for the next several months or whatever, actually have long-term consequences because decisions are taken that, uh, that are very difficult to reverse? Absolutely. Uh, as mentioned, I mean, any conversations that we've had with airlines, they have to me- make these commercial decisions two or three years out. You know, aircraft are expensive items and they're going to put them on routes that are commercially viable. So if we lose these routes, we will not get them back uh, w- within a short period of time. We're talking an impact this three or four years down, down the line. And particularly from a leisure tourism perspective, that's going to have an, an absolutely catastrophic impact on the region. And, how, and particularly the impact that, that can have on regions outside Dublin. Um, maybe, maybe uh, you know, capital city is going to be a little bit more robust. But how vulnerable are areas like Cork, uh, the Munster, in the Midwest? 
We know, for instance, that from a staycation perspective, the, the Cork region has done incredibly well and it also resonates very much with the European traveller. Um, so we need that European traveller to be coming um, to Cork and to the region, particularly as people are now going to be taking shorter breaks. They're not going to be coming for that longer break. So connectivity is going to be crucial and it has to be into the region. They're not going to travel down from Dublin um, or from, from other countries um, into Cork from that perspective. And the final word to me, Julie? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the message has to go out now that the government are prepared to engage with the, the sector, both tourism and airlines, working around a common approach coming from the European Union so that there's certainty given not just to the, to the airline sector but also to the tourism sector so that you know the, those that invest in that sector can plan for the year ahead. Nobody is suggesting that we can get back to the same level of, of activity uh, that we have just come off but we've got to start again from the base up uh, and work our way through it. All right, there we leave it. Thank you both very much for talking to us. Timmy Dooley of uh, Fianna Fáil and uh, Paula Cogan, President of the uh, Cork Chamber of Commerce. Dara McAnulty, a 16-year-old from County Down, has become the youngest ever winner of a major literary prize as his book Diary of a Young Naturalist scooped the Wainwright Prize. The Wainwright Prize is awarded for nature and global conservation writing and Dara McAnulty has earned a reputation as one of the leading young conservationists in Britain and Ireland. He started writing Diary of a Young Naturalist at 14 documenting the year from spring equinox to spring equinox from his 14th to 15th birthday and in it he recounts his life as his family moves across Northern Ireland transporting him away from his beloved local forest changing schools and dealing with bullying and we can talk to Dara now. Dara good morning and congratulations. Good morning thank you it's you, been quite you must be uh, you must be very proud and pleased this morning <laughs> yeah. Dara are you? Yeah I'm I'm really proud of my book and it was sort of pouring all of my emotion and thought into a book and seeing it doing well feels bizarre. <laughs> it, it feels really, really strange. But yeah, it's it's been crazy. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about your book. Yeah, so this book basically chronicles, as you said, from the between the between the solstices and it covers all of what was going going on in my life at that time, including moving house and that connection to nature, which helped to anchor me and anchor me through that time and bring me out on the other side with some semblance of sanity. And this book for me felt like a way of putting those thoughts out onto the page and giving me a sort of output device that I didn't really have before. Did writing help you with that change in your life? Almost certainly, because I needed to be able to understand what was going on at that time. And the best way of understanding what was happening to me and how I was feeling was for me to write about it. And in that sense almost re-experience everything and then being able to go back over it. I read that in your acceptance speech um, you said that the award was for young people and that uh, when young people are nurtured and accepted that marvellous things can happen. What did you mean by that? Well, I feel like in the literature world, at least, um, there's a lot more older people and I think young people have a really strong fresh perspective to give on nature writing or any other writing actually on the whole and I think that we have the ability to because we haven't grown up in a in in this world for that long and we can see things differently without some of the biases that you could build up as you grow older and in that sense I think that we have a great um, gift to given that sense when it comes to literature and any of the other creative arts and I just want to see more young people writing on on the whole because it really just shows this massive plethora of different um, and diversity of ideas 
The Guardian's review of your book said, A few hours reading this intimate, sensitive, deeply felt memoir lifted my spirits and gave me a great deal of hope for the future, simply that young people like Dara McAnulty are alive and writing in the world. I think the reviewer also said that you had no joy barrier, which was a lovely thing to say about your book. Yeah. In the book I say that I do not have a joy filter, and I think that that is a thing that has been almost put in place in the adult's mind where a certain amount of joy almost feels childish or immature and I find found that absolutely insa- insanity because it joy is how we express our love of the world and how can we expect to be um, almost respectful and have that connection to the world that we live in without feeling all of that joy that exists in it. And of course there are darker bits of this world which makes it all the more important to give us this this joy. Dara, before I let you go, can can I ask you to read an extract from your book for us before we leave you? Okay then. Um, Oh my, I've just lost the page. (laughs) That's okay, take your time. Got it. On both Bow Island and Glendalough, with the traces of St. Kevin, I felt gateways opening, choices to make, roads to travel. I have a longing to spend more time in the intricacies of nature, without the interactions and complications of people. I yearn for this simplicity, but I also want to go out into the world and weave my way, however, however overwhelming and painful it might be, nature and us, at odds and at one. As I ran to join my family for the last stretch of the walk at Glendalough, leaving St. Kevin and the Blackbird behind, a solar glare draped over us, connecting us to the lad with invisible strings, a longer, heavier line is is to be cast out into that world. My heart is opening. I'm ready. That was the last paragraph of the book where I'm sort Dara, of going I, out. Yeah. I know you're very busy this morning and you're doing lots of interviews, but before we do let you go, you've a second book written and I believe you're planning on writing a third too. Is that right? Yeah, I've got the ideas for the third book. They're sort of bubbling around somewhere. There's nothing real co- concrete any about us. The second book is going to be a children's book that I can't say anything about. Um, <laughs> we look forward to it book. <laughs> Diary of a Naturalist the award winning Dara McAnulty thank you very much for speaking to us this morning You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland